You are listening to So What, a podcast from Canadian Mennonite University. CMU is in Winnipeg, Manitoba on Treaty 1 land. I am your host, Jonas Cornelson, in Calgary, Alberta, Treaty 7. Buju, Christy Anderson in Dijnikas, Nin Penemuteng Indoji, Nin Mahigan Indodem. In the language of my ancestors, I just introduced myself. My name is Christy Anderson. I am from Penemuteng First Nation, Treaty 2 territory, and I am of the Wolf Clan. Yes, Christy is back with me for one more episode on reconciliation. In fact, not only will I be talking with Christy, but our conversation is about a sermon Christy herself gave at CMU. This was in fall 2021, shortly before the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. We will be posting the whole sermon as a standalone feature in our podcast feed, but I'm also excited to dig into a few clips that stood out to me. Christie's sermon was titled, Destroy This Man-Made Temple. This refers to a story in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus challenges the Jerusalem ruling elites to destroy their most holy temple and watch him raise it up in three days. As Christie points out in the clip I'll play for you here, a temple is not just a building, but represents a whole system of power and control. Right after this, you'll be live with me and Christie. When the Pharisees demanded that Jesus show them a sign, why was it that Jesus countered with challenging them to destroy their sacred holy temple? Could it be that Jesus actually meant that he intended to destroy the religious ways of the man-made temple and all its hierarchies through his death and resurrection? Was Jesus telling us that regardless of who destroyed the man-made temples of Jerusalem, that his death and resurrection was intended to destroy our man-made temples and replace it with something far more valuable than patriarchal religious dogma? If Jesus were with us today, would he condemn the contemporary religious leaders of North America for their Western constructs of Christianity that so often build a wall between himself and peoples who honor God the Creator through a different worldview? Okay, there's the clip. I have too many windows open on my screen right now. <laughs> just getting back to my notes. I'm brilliant. Okay. I'll just say that. I'm brilliant. You are. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Christy, we just heard you talk about why Jesus may have focused on the temple in particular in this biblical story. So the conversation I'd like to have today is we're going to start with how did Christianity go so wrong with these man-made temples all over again through colonialism? And then how might we work towards something better? So we'll start with where Christianity went wrong. I have another clip from your sermon where you go straight from Jesus condemning these religious institutions right to white Christian settlers building those same kinds of systems. Jesus had hardly begun to shake the foundation of power between church and state before the religious leaders began plotting his murder. In fact, these religious leaders carry on accusing Jesus of being from Satan. They demand he give them a miraculous sign to prove he is of God, and they challenge his authority at every turn, in spite of his many miracles and growing popularity. These Pharisees were so threatened by Jesus' challenge to their systematic, hierarchical religiosity that their only solution was to murder him. Mark's gospel illustrates the frustration that Jesus, Son of God, 
felt in dealing with these patriarchs, who held insurmountable social, economic, political, and religious power, and clearly used it for their personal gain. He was disturbed and angered by their hardened hearts. When settlers came to this land we call Turtle Island, they came wielding their Bibles, their patriarchal religious ideologies, and the blessings of the Catholic Church and foreign state to usurp lands from Indigenous peoples. So I want to start by sharing a quote with you from Cherokee Chief Drowning Bear. This is on his impression of the Bible. He said, it seems like a good book, but strange that the white people are not better after having had it for so long. (laughs) So to recap that clip, you tell a story from the Bible where Jesus condemns the social and religious power system to such a degree that the Pharisees, the religious elites, decide to kill him. And then this transition, I will note, was not edited you jump right to the story of white settlers, quote, wielding their Bibles as instruments of colonization and setting up the same kinds of top-down power system that Jesus condemns in those very Bibles. So we can see how Chief Drowning Bear would be somewhat confused by this. <laughs> it seems like such hypocrisy, you know, they, the church reads the Bible, reads the stories of Jesus who says, don't do this, and then they basically do exactly what Jesus said not to do. <laughs> like, right. You know, what, like... Where do they get off? (laughs) Okay. So without being a specialist in those kinds of areas of history, the way I look at it and the way I see it is that, you know, regardless, during that time when colonization was happening all over the world, people were motivated by greed. (laughs) So you can imagine if we think about like what it would be like to be a settler kind of coming from, you know, England where you're poor, you have nothing. And, you know, someone is saying, hey, if you go over here, we'll give you land. Land is a sign of wealth automatically. Like it still is today. Right. Um, And will give you an opportunity to kind of be the first ones over there to set set up shop like for us right and like and anything that you find there like you can you can have part of so i think like when it comes right down to it i mean settler colonialism is was and is motivated by greed right and mm. i mean Christians are still greedy people. Greed is something that we have to, greed and desire and want for what other people have. Like, I mean, there's stories in the Bible that tell us that we have to resist those things, right? That we have to be happy with what we do have, that we have to acknowledge God as the giver of all good gifts, all those other kinds of like teachings that come out of the Bible. But that doesn't mean that our human instinct doesn't take over and want us to have more and to have better, right? So I think is human nature, right? Like, I mean, God tells us that our human nature gets us in trouble. Like, that's what the whole Bible is about, about human nature getting in our own way, of us getting in our own way. And so to me, I feel like it's a perfect, like, settler colonialism is a perfect example of people getting in their own way and definitely not following God's heart, but following their yeah. own human desires for more. Mm-hmm. It sounds it sounds to me almost like there's there's not some there's not some great trick here or like some kind of like really fancy interpretation where we can say, oh Jesus didn't mean that. It's almost like we just it just didn't really sink in. <laughs> I do think that maybe, and this is my own personal opinion, but I think maybe the fact that during that time there was um not as many literate people in the world as well. So people were 
even 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 settlers and colonists, right? Like they were relying on men of the cloth to interpret that word for them too. That doesn't take away or or like absolve them of their own consciousness, right? Or like listening to their own consciousness and 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 you know, doing the right thing or being led by spirit even. Um, But I think sometimes, like, I do think about stuff like that. Like, how would it have been to have been kind of, you know, this believer and and having other people tell me what I'm supposed to believe without really having the tools to even be able to, like, see what's there for myself, right? And so I think, and then we, we get back to something like the doctrine of discovery, which was, you know, the papal bull of the Catholic church, which made it legal and God sanctioned to go and take any lands that were not being used correctly in accordance with Western ideas of what correct and good use of land were. Right. Yeah. Some of which would have come from like the Genesis text about dominion and all that kind of thing. Right. Oh, man. I hate that part. (laughs) We we won't even go there. That's like a whole other monster over there, you know, because that's another thing that we need to talk about. I don't advocate for a full anybody can interpret the Bible any way they want. But I'm saying God gave us also critical thinking skills and that we need to be able to like read between the lines. We need to be able to understand what is there and what is not there. And we need to be able to have difficult conversations about what some of these deeper meanings are in the text instead of assuming much like, you know, settlers from the West would have done that the man of the cloth knows all and tells us Mm -hmm. exactly what we need to know about God. So, yeah, that leads me really well into, I want to get into that with a specific scripture text that you also brought up in your sermon Uh, and not the theme text, but this is in Matthew 28, this passage that's often called the great commission has, has very often been read as kind of supporting colonization, conversion, whatever it is. So it reads in part, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and the Holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So here's one clip where, you describe the way white settlers impose Christianity on indigenous peoples, and it very much summarizes what I would call the standard interpretation of this text. You see, when white supremacist Christianity infiltrated these lands through settlers, the church told us that we could not be saved and know Christ if we retained our cultural and spiritual practices. They told us that we had to leave all of those heathen, savage ways behind us or drown in a lake of fire. Concise. Mm. <laughs> when when I first read Matthew 28, you know, a long time ago, I, I had like a very actually visceral negative reaction. I almost cried mm. because just reading its surface meaning filtered through white Western Christianity, it really flew in the face of everything else I thought I'd learned about Jesus. And I thought, oh man, that's why Christians are so terrible. Like that's how they justified doing all these horrible things. And yet closer to the beginning of your sermon, you make what I thought was a very sophisticated move and you used the same text with a completely different emphasis. So I'm going to play you that clip and then get you to reflect on it a little bit. I recognize that what I am about to share, if spoken in another time and place, would have likely ended with me burning at the stake for heresy. And in fact, some of you may walk away from this chapel thinking me a heretic. 
But as Jesus instructed in Matthew 28, my mission to make disciples of all nations and teach them all the things God has taught me is stronger than my desire to cater to your comfort zone. That was a great mic drop there. Cater to your comfort zone. <laughs> I love that. But so I guess my question from that, from that somewhat personal place is just how did you manage to shed all that baggage around that text and frame it much more inclusively? <laughs> well, I mean, because I, I, I figure, <laughs> although there are many commands and many teachings within the Bible, including from Jesus, Jesus actually made it really simple for us. And like people forget that Jesus like knew how ridiculously stupid we can be as humans. And, you know, he left us in the end with two commandments. Like in spite of all his teachings and everything that he told us that we should or shouldn't do, all these other things, like in the end, he was like, nah, let me just sum this up for you folks. Uh, first, Put God first, love God above everything else. And second, love other people, right? This is where we hear the like, you know, love never fails kind of like rhetoric, right? Of Christian rhetoric, which I think is great, right? Like, but the problem here is that settler colonization and the way that it was forced on people and the actions that they took that were so hurtful and discriminatory and racist against indigenous peoples and trying to force us to change like who we were and telling us that we were horrible the way we were like that right there defies any kind of the two commandments that Jesus left us with, right? Like that we're supposed to love other people. So when I think about loving other people, I think of loving other people exactly as they are. I'm not responsible for changing other people. As a matter of fact, my job is to love them exactly where they are and for who they are in this moment. So I see it as my relationship with God and in writing this sermon that was of spirit. When I wrote that sermon, I did not write that alone. It didn't come from just my knowledge and my experience. It came from those things, but it also came right from God. Like I was being inspired, just like any of those other writers in the Bible. God was working through me and telling me what I needed to get down on there and what I needed to speak at that chapel. And I felt it. I felt it. So when I look at that, you know, in telling this story and in sharing this truth and in sharing this way of seeing things, you know, that I am doing that work of God in making disciples, in showing people how it's been misread, how it's been misinterpreted, how people thought that going out in the world and colonizing meant making disciples. But in nowhere did they ever love us just for who we were. As soon as we came into contact uh, and as soon as they stopped being able to gain things from us, their mission was to change us into them, right? And that is not a loving God. I actually have one one last topic. It's just where do we go from here? You know, the much as we can complain that that these power systems were set up where they shouldn't have been, they were set up and their legacies are still just felt so deeply everywhere. Mm. So I have a, I have a clip from you of how this kind of applies 
a little more here and now. So we'll we'll play that. Let's hear it. While the church and state are no longer as tangled in the proverbial social and political web as they were in our settler colonial beginnings, the hierarchical, patriarchal structures of the state remain omnipresent in church structures, even in spaces like CMU, where the intention to make decisions as a community is built into the system. It is the oft-invisible legacy of settler colonial institutions in Canada that remain unacknowledged and unchallenged for the manner in which these spaces cater to whiteness and male privilege. What is not so obvious to those who fit the silent requirements of spaces like these is the alienation of one who may feel welcome, but still does not feel quite like they belong. It is within these churchly spaces where Indigenous peoples must conform to whiteness in order to be acceptable, and quite frankly, often to even make it through the door. This privileging of whiteness in churches is routinely invisible to the most hospitable, well-intentioned, nice Christians. But it screams of ongoing colonialism when Indigenous peoples suggest alternative Indigenous ways of doing, only to be confronted with that is not how we do things, or countered with, that is how we've always done things. The systematic colonial order prevails. Whiteness and the power that it wields goes unnamed and unchallenged because we are all nice Christians and we shrink away from difficult conversations. Okay, there's a lot going on in there. Oh, is there ever? Let's, <laughs> let's make it specific right away. You you suggested that CMU has has kind of inserted some collaborative decision-making into this system of hierarchy and patriarchy, but the implication is that the broader system remains intact. What needs to change at CMU? Oh, that is a loaded question. That's really unfair. So loaded. <laughs> I did that on purpose. Are you trying to get me fired, Jonas? No, not at all. Maybe I'll get myself fired. Who knows? Okay, quick editor's note here. That was a loaded question, and I knew it. I asked it because if we don't ask those loaded questions, how are we going to make the change we need? One angle of many that we explored is there are certain institutional structures CMU simply needs to have, like a board of governors, that are historically rooted in these kinds of colonial top-down power systems that Christie, and arguably Jesus, takes issue with. I've often wondered whether at CMU or the Government of Canada, is true reconciliation possible within these systems? What are the changes we can make now to start us on that path? Christy had some great thoughts on this, beginning with the nature of her role as an advisor compared with being specifically empowered to make change. I then asked her what some of those changes would be. I can advise anybody of anything. I can advise my eight-year-old that he needs to wear a jacket to go outside today. And he could say, <laughs> no, thanks, ma. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's no power in advisory, anything. And so because we're seeking in our reconciliation relationships to rebalance power, that means that, you know, we have to, the institution has to give more power to us. So if, if instead of being the Indigenous Engagement Advisor, you were the Indigenous Engagement Executor, what uh, what would be a couple of the first things you would execute? <laughs> um, well, I think first and foremost, it would be to have Indigenous representation at that Board of Governors level. Like, you're never going to 
change the structure unless you have, you know, an indigenous perspective there saying, mm, well, I like you guys and everything, but this isn't working. Um, I think it needs to happen at that level. I think CMU needs to do two things. These are two of the things that I've just, that I think CMU needs to do immediately. CMU needs to write Indigenous relationships and reconciliation into its strategic plan. If you have it in the strategic plan, people can go, oh yeah, this is something that we said was important to us. Oh yeah, this is, this is part of our strategy. This is how, this is who we are. We want to have good relationships with Indigenous people and we put it in our strategic plan. Second thing that CMU needs to do, you know, when we allocate resources, when we hire Indigenous people, um, and when we have a budget line for Indigenous initiatives, it demonstrates where our institutional priorities are. To me, those are two really, really important areas that CMU can easily make a decision to prioritize. Yeah. No, what I hear you saying is it's not that we have to tear down the entire board and governance structure and the way we do things, but it's to to make Indigenous engagement and relationship a fundamental part of the way we do things, even as it stands. Seriously. Include, yeah. include Indigenous relations and like engagement and all that stuff in your strategic plan. Do yeah. it. The floodgates have been open. <laughs> So, so much good stuff here. And, and this is, this is our last, uh, our last little bit for the series. So, you know, thank you so much for all your contributions. It would not have been nearly as insightful without you. <laughs> well, thank you, Jonas. Thank you so much for having these conversations. I'll just sign off by saying, you know, I think it's really important for settler people to continue to have these types of conversations. And I really appreciate you bringing me in to have an Indigenous perspective on these things. But I also just wanted to reiterate how much I, I value and think that like settler people need to do their own work. And so mm -hmm. this is really great that you've taken up that task and that you're running with it. And so miigwech, chimigwech for your good work on this. Mm -hmm. I don't take that lightly. Thank you very much. And uh, oh, yeah. Don't forget. Make me make me sound good. I have been deeply honored to work with Christy on these episodes. Thanks again to her. And thanks to you for coming along on the ride. I just know that you want to hear all of Christy's sermon on its own. And you can. We've published the whole thing as a special feature in our podcast feed. Wherever you found this episode, you can find Christy's sermon too. I highly recommend listening to it. We covered so much ground today, from where colonizers got the Bible wrong, to where we can start to make things right in today's institutions. Emphasis on start. The work is never done. If you want to share your thoughts on any of this, you can leave a comment on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sowhatpodcast. Again, Christy's entire sermon and all our other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms. And this brings us to the end of season two for So What. We'll be off the air for spring and summer, but I hope you'll tune in again next fall. My name is Jonas Cornelson. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you in September. Take care.